Hello all, welcome to another episode of the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm John Bergman, I'm your host for this one. And today's guest is Dean Prevet. He's the founder of Iron City Boulders in Pittsburgh. He's also the founder of Blue Swan Boulders in Orlando. And he's the president of Moments Climbing, which is essentially a European gym chain. They have a few facilities in Finland. So based on those credentials, Dean and I had a wide ranging conversation about some ways that the US climbing gym industry and the European climbing gym industry are similar and different. So we get into construction costs and locational preferences and the way that Europe really values entry level climbs in terms of its route setting, a lot of other stuff too. And at the end of the episode, Dean gives some ways that you can reach out to him if you'd like to contact him for some more knowledge and expertise on this subject. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation about Europe and the US with Dean Prevent. CBJ and this podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. Butora has been building comfortable, high-performance climbing footwear since 2014. New for 2023 is Butora's take on approach shoes with two new models, the Musai and the Hexa. Both are great for approaches and route setting and will be available soon at ButoraUSA.com. True Blue is the only auto belay with magnetic braking. They're proud to be the official auto belay of USA Climbing and True Blues can be found on climbing walls across the world. Their one-of-a-kind no-delay belay program will automatically ship you a ready-to-hang True Blue before your current one is due for service. Learn more at headrushtech.com. Dean, it is a, a pleasure to have you here on the show today. Thanks for making the time as you are ready to embark on a trip to Europe. Your bags are packed. So I appreciate you squeezing in CBJ here. It sounds like this is a trip that you make quite often going from your home in the United States to Europe. It will be my 10th time in Bulgaria specifically in like the past five years. So probably above average for people from Pittsburgh. Yeah, you do kind of have one foot on each continent in terms of your career, which I I'll, I said up top in the intro, but you're from Pittsburgh, from the Pittsburgh suburbs, grew up in California, own two gyms here in the US, but then you are also president of Moments Climbing, which is a, I, I guess a gym chain, would that be a good way to describe it based in, in Finland? Is that... Uh, uh, almost for both. I didn't grow up in California. I just spent uh, almost four years there running and helping open the Santa Barbara Rock Gym and then working in a number of gyms around kind of the LA market. Uh, and that was after college and after a time in Maryland at Urtrek. So it was just kind of like a period in, of time in my climbing career. Um, before I started working for Waltopia um, as a sales rep and then eventually the head of sales, which is really what gave me the springboard into the Europe, so to speak, or the one foot in each continent. Uh, so I didn't have much experience there outside of a study abroad program in college prior to working for Waltopia. Um, but that experience, the six years I had, almost six years at Waltopia, led me to my now business partners from Finland and Norway. So you know, for the sake of this conversation, my Nordic business partners, um, which started the Moments Climbing Company. And that was through a 
kind of an acquisition of the Kipley Arena gyms in Helsinki, Finland. There were three at the time, now four. Um, and our business partner joined up uh, to open climbing gyms in other countries. And my business partner, Henrik Sukinen from Finland, who founded and operates the Kipley Arena gyms, knew kind of how strong the U.S. market was um, because he was also a Waltopia sales rep, which is where, you know, my story kind of... Uh, allows me to have access to all these Europeans is through Waltopia sales reps. Um, but he asked me to join up with moments and I had long desired, but publicly, uh, to own a climbing gym in the U S. And so given the opportunity, I kind of jumped out of that sales role at Waltopia. We didn't want to have any conflicts of interest here in the U S with a sales rep also owning gyms and having, you know, access to sensitive information, stuff like that. Uh, so I made a transition out and joined moments, uh, climbing and founded moments climbing USA. And by doing so, I was able to open Blue Swan Boulders in Orlando, Florida, and Iron City Boulders here in Pittsburgh, PA, where I did grow up, still live, and have spent almost most of my time. It all it makes you a really good expert or a really good resource to talk about how the U.S. and the European gym industries are maybe similar, maybe different in terms of just their business, their culture. The climbing scenes on the two continents. I I suppose the disclaimer here is, of course, Europe is massive, and so I, I'm each country is going to have a little bit, a little bit of nuance in all of those categories: the business, the culture, the climbing scene. But for the sake of this conversation, we're just going to throw it all into this big bucket and say Europe, the European climbing gym scene. Hopefully we can dissect it all here and in a way that's helpful to gym owners here in the United States in terms of talking about the ideas and the systems and the models that maybe some information that could be borrowed from one scene to the other and, and vice versa. Let's start by breaking it down, which is something that you did in some emails that we had back and forth before this call. We can break down Europe's gym model or gym industry, I should say, into kind of two large categories. There's the construction category, which would be the, the facility itself. And then there is the operations category. So let's start with the construction, kind of the, at the very base level, you, you, you have to find somewhere to, to have your gym, right? Whether it's building or acquiring a space. Um, so how does it, yeah, how does that go in Europe? If I'm if I'm in Europe and I'm a and I want to start a gym, well, you know, what's that like? To clarify, the most of my information I'll be sharing is you know, somewhat anecdotal from sitting in Waltopia sales agents meetings with all of the different sales reps from Europe, where we'd present on our our numbers, our figures, what projects we're working on, um, and then of course I forged relationships with those people. And as I entered into kind of the climbing gym ownership and construction side. I asked them questions, leaned on them for consulting, you know, with design stuff. So most of my information is, is just from conversation of people who have done it. And to clarify, I have not. Um, my business partners have. And so we share a lot of information specific to the Nordic countries. So I just want to make sure that if I, if I say something that's not true and some European calls it out, then that's totally justified. But I'm going to give my kind of best uh, shot at this. And my understanding around the European market... Um, constraints for building climbing gyms are kind of specific to the fact that there's, you know, just not giant flat fields where you can buy a piece of property and build a building from the ground up to open a 30,000 square foot rope gym, 
right? So that's a little bit more true of Texas or the Midwest or, you know, cities that don't have these existing geographic constraints of mountains and rivers, like arguably Pittsburgh does, like it's pretty hard to buy property in Pittsburgh and build a big building on it until you get out to the suburbs because of that. But it's much more true of Europe, um, especially around historic buildings and all those things. So you see a lot more conversion of existing spaces into climbing gyms rather than new ground up builds by the owners themselves. Now, the flip of that is there's still obviously development that happens uh, in European countries where a larger company will come in and buy a piece of property and either scrape it or build a, a large skyscraper or a building or a mall or something like that. And so the European operators tend to find themselves partnering up with developers a lot more than the U.S. does, or at a higher percentage, I would say. I think it, you know everybody does a little bit of everything in every country, but the percentage of climbing gym operators that have to partner with developers to get to these locations versus buying the land or the property themselves is a lot higher. Um, so they just have more constraints to work around, um, especially if you're you know, following what is now the modern model of indoor climbing, which is to be in the desirable location versus being destination-based. So in the U.S., you know, of course, climbing kind of started in industrial suburbs where there were buildings large and cheap enough to put it. But now people are trying to open gyms in, you know, A locations of A cities, uh, which are a lot more expensive. But fortunately, the you know, the industry is progressing in that way. Well, that's kind of how Europe's always been to be in a good location. You just had to be downtown or somewhere that's already developed or, or you know, heavily populated. Um, and so they're looking at renovations and rehabs kind of a lot more than the U.S. is. Um, and those can be more difficult if there's historic components to it and things of that nature. And in terms of a, a lot of the people that are opening gyms in Europe these days, uh, one of the trends we've seen in the United States is an increase in people coming in, opening gyms that are maybe venture capitalists, right? They see it as an opportunity to to make some money or to make to start a business that can grow and, and there, there can be some eventual profit as opposed to maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago, right? Every, Everybody that started a climbing gym was a, a diehard climber. <laughs> you know? yeah. So we've, we've seen that model kind of shift a little bit. In Europe, are you seeing venture capitalists increasingly coming in and starting gyms? Or is it still, you know, the mountaineers, the, the people that just are diehard climbers? Is that similar or different to the U.S.? You know, I think I don't have enough recent information around that because it's so new in the U.S. as well. And I've been out of Waltopia for now up to four years and, and kind of less contact with that. I would say that's not true in the Nordic market where I'm still you know, more familiar with it based on my business partners. Um, I think the difference in terms of kind of the climbing gym operators in Europe versus the U.S. is in the U.S., like you said, there's individuals who like climbing. There's individuals uh, or who have climbed and are climbers and want to open their own climbing gym. There are individuals who have identified this as a viable business opportunity and are kind of new to the industry, but opening the businesses anyways. And then there's institutional or venture capital type of companies now coming in and entering the market. Well, I think, you know, at least the first two definitely exist in Europe. I'm, I assume maybe the third does, or they're starting to as well. But the one thing that Europe has that the U.S. doesn't is that they also have these kind of clubs or federations that have existed for, you know, tens or hundreds of years, essentially, uh, that also can act as gym operators. So that's really unique to the European market that we have nothing of that type in the US. So the most common example is the DABs in Germany, um, or basically the Mountaineering Federation that I think, or the Alpine Club, it's some uh, acronym that you know doesn't translate exactly in English. But DAV is essentially a 
mountaineering federation from Germany that I believe is 100 years or plus older, has paying members uh, that support it, and then actually now entered into the climbing gym operations market. And they have a number of facilities all around Germany, where if you're a member of the federation, you can get free or discounted access to the facilities. The, the benefit of these types of clubs, and this is true of one that happened in Norway recently with kind of my business partner's uh, property in Norway, the climbing club in that town sponsored and built an indoor for-profit climbing gym. Um, so you're not turned away if you're not a member, but you get a discount or an access. One thing that these clubs and federations have access to is federal funding or whatever government funding uh, that allows them to kind of build large facilities or maybe ones that don't even have to have as high of a profit margin as one owned by an individual operator. So this club aspect um, is really interesting because obviously, you know, being able to open a whole for-profit climbing gym is one thing, but they also uh, have influence in even the individually owned uh, facilities. So we'll take, for example, the Kipley Arena gyms, my partner's over in Helsinki. A lot of their climbing courses and the climbing team are run by the climbing club versus the individual gym operator. So there's a little bit of like a hybrid model there where some gyms will have their own teams and their own courses and stuff. But then also the clubs and the federations essentially rent space from the gyms to teach their own classes and courses. So I think this is really interesting and something that the U.S. is missing because it's, you know, we're still in that awareness phase in the U.S. where we just need more people to be aware of the sport of climbing and get education around it to become climbers and eventual customers of climbing gyms. Well, these federations act as an amazing funnel for that because they have outdoor classes, they have meetups, they have groups, they have all of these like for uh, the benefit of climbing type of activities that then eventually create customers for you. Now, how that works from a monetary standpoint, you know, is it more lucrative to have your own team versus the club renting? I don't, I don't know the ins and out of that enough, but it's a huge difference that really does affect kind of the monetization model around specifically, let's say climbing teams, like youth climbing teams. You know, in the US, everything is really focused on the individual climbing gym company or owner to set up a team, hire good coaches, have modern route setting that prepares these athletes for competition. And, and even, you know, in the US, the gyms are the ones hosting all of the competitions. So if you look at Europe, you know, they have this huge system behind all of their athletes that I think, you know, helping them prepare a little bit better for the sport and, um, you know, at least just get more kids into it for a longer period of time and takes a lot of the burden off of the gym owners because the clubs or the teams themselves are actually, you know, fundraising or providing support to the athletes versus just the gyms themselves or the athletes themselves. So am I envisioning this correctly, that that would be something like USA Climbing having its own chain of gyms here in the United States? Is that would that be comparable to what some of the European countries are yeah, doing? I think with from like federation? a DAB standpoint, yes, that would be like the USA C gyms are in a couple different cities or something like that. Um, uh, I believe the Innsbruck gym is kind of similar to that as well. The Kletter Center, you know, that was kind of based around, uh, I believe, the concept of just the Olympics, you know, or something that propelled that into existence. And I do think that's a big benefit of the Olympics that the U.S. has yet to see, like, you know, when that was announced, everybody's like, oh, this is going to be great for the sport. And there's definitely been, you know, some increase in awareness of the sport and some customers. But, you know, somewhere we built a climbing gym when I was at Waltopia is the U.S. National Whitewater Center in North Carolina, which exists entirely because it trains kayakers for the Olympics, right? Like it's this 
essentially training center that received some state or federal funding to be built, but then also has this for-profit arm where they have all these other like zip lining activities and stuff like that. So when something's in the Olympics and you get federal funding behind it, then you start to see centers being able to be built. And then whether they're for profit or just for training, you know, it depends on the sport and the operator. Um, but that's something that I believe will start to happen out of the Olympics is you just see more uh, funding available. And maybe that's something that USAC has tapped into or will tap into. I, I'm not very familiar with the USAC um, inner workings. Yeah, we want to be clear, you're not affiliated with USA Climbing, but it it is worth noting that they do have that new training center, the TC, mm-hmm. as they call it, in Salt Lake City, that's for the elite athletes and the Olympians to train. So essentially, what we're talking about here would just be kind of replicating that facility or that model of a space that's owned and operated by USA Climbing and just putting it in elsewhere in the country. It'd be a, a, a new development if if we'd see that. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the success of that comes down to the amount of federal funding that would be available for it versus the for-profit or like the standard, you know, gym owning and operating a climbing gym where you take out bank loans, pay it back off of the for-profit. Because the way that those facilities are supposed to operate is for the athletes first and kind of the customer second or the betterment of the sport second. Um, So I don't know the viability of that model, so to speak. But yeah, that's what has effectively been done in... Europe already. Uh, But I think that the difference there is that those organizations existed before indoor climbing and then transitioned into how do we, you know, help propel our sport forward. And that's, you know, obviously shifted to being most people climb indoors before they ever go outdoors, you know, in the whole uh, history of climbing, that's a relatively new development, right? Like the past 10 years, so to speak. So a lot of the European, um, federations or clubs have existed for, like I said, a hundred years and have had X number of members. Like, I think the DAV has like a million members or something like that. I could be making that number up. I should have researched it beforehand, but it's like a substantial amount of paying customers ahead of time where USAC has been created for the sport of indoor climbing and or youth climbing specifically. So I think there's, there's pretty big differences there that would maybe, you know, hinder that model from actually coming to fruition. But again, I don't know. Uh, enough about USAC to speak to that. Well, and another glaring difference is USAC as an American governing body, they do not get federal funding, which makes them quite different from a lot of the other federations. But this is, we're we're orbiting here the subject of funding for opening a gym. And and so I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit of the, the costs of opening a gym in Europe, or maybe specifically in the countries that you're familiar with, compared to the cost of opening a gym here in the United States, because here in the U.S., it it is pretty expensive to open a gym and getting seemingly more and more expensive as people are coming to expect more and more amenities and programming as part of a gym. Uh, so how does that compare to, to Europe costs? Um, you know, I can't speak to the costs of say climbing wall construction because i just don't know especially now what it's been since the pandemic like i haven't built since the pandemic so in the u.s first europe i mean i think the product was always even from the walltopia side a bit cheaper in europe but that was predominantly due to shipping and crew costs you know not the product itself um so there's some cost savings there and just proximity um but in my experience of you know kind of uh co-building gyms during the pandemic which i did with my business partner so i was building in the us while he was building um over in kipley arena their big rope gym ristico which is 
beautiful and uh, kind of an amazing facility for the Nordics, a really large, you know, 30,000 square foot rope gym with 15 meter walls. You know, he built that for the same cost that I built uh, a 10,000 square foot bouldering gym here in the U.S., um, and so most of that relates to trades and permitting and architectural services um, and just kind of the generic construction of a climbing gym. So um, that, again, this is specific to the Nordics. I can't speak to, to this in, in Europe or any of those countries, but in the Nordic markets, they just, you know, their, their construction costs are so much lower. Their hurdles, their red tape, so to speak, are a lot lower. Um, so they're able to build a bit faster. Um, like he kind of... <laughs> built that gym in like less than six months or something. And granted, there was like a pandemic, like window of production from Waltopia that was available. But the fact that you can even, you know, submit permits, get approvals and build something like that in six months is like basically impossible here in the US. Um, and so I think that, you know, while they have some barriers to entry that are greater, like the difficulty of finding locations and stuff like that, there are some, you know, barriers to entry that are lower, such as finding um, or getting through a permitting process and getting contractors to build and, and kind of not blow your budget out of the water. Um, and, you know, another is, I think, and worth noting, when it comes to funding and building gyms, especially for first-time operators, like the most difficult part of getting a gym off the ground is getting a bank to give you a loan based on projections that you've essentially made up and swear will come true uh, because there's no publicly available information on climbing gym you know, finances yet. Whereas in Europe, almost every country is publicly financial, you know, whether it's hundred percent accurate or not depends on how they, they reported it, but you can basically go and look up the financials of a climbing gym competitor in your country in Europe and see what they did and say to the bank, like, Hey, look how well this gym is doing. I want to do this thing in this space. And, you know, it, it makes it a lot easier to prove the business case and the business model. Not to mention that, you know, just from kind of like an educated market standpoint, like, you know, banks, sponsor climbing gym competitions over there. <laughs> so it's like they're a lot more educated on what climbing is. They understand it a lot more versus like, you know, my first, I tried to open a climbing gym in Pittsburgh for 10 years and many different iterations before I ended up working with moments um, and, you know, kind of eliminated that hurdle of having to explain what climbing gyms are and why they're a good investment, because as you said, they're very expensive, right? Like, uh, a couple of years ago, there was an article that was like, is climbing the new CrossFit? And my answer to that is like, no, because you can build a CrossFit gym for what, 50 or 100K lease equipment. Climbing gyms cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So it's just a lot harder to go and find that money. And I think in Europe, because it's such an established market or sport or product that a lot of bankers you know, know it or understand it. Like my business partner from Finland, uh, during a lot of his development before moments came in, like he was using um, a banker who was a member of his gym. Right? So he's like, Hey, I want to open a new location. He's like, Oh, great. Send me the business plan. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is awesome. Like, of course I love it. Like, I don't know one banker that's, you know, a member of my gym currently, or that I could reach out to about financing a gym. Um, and then they also just have different requirements around personal guarantees, like the federal government over there, Finvera will like, um, you know, guarantee a certain percentage of the loan versus you having to personally guarantee hundred percent of the loan. So I think that there's this mixed bag around financing gyms uh, in Europe, where it can sometimes just have those barriers to entry specifically for first-time operators reduced or removed entirely. And you, I want to go back to something you said kind of at the beginning when we started talking about all this construction is the actual location of the facility um, and how obviously Europe has some some really historic areas and historic uh, buildings and whatnot. 
something I noticed when I lived in Asia that was very interesting because it was very different than what I was accustomed to seeing here in the United States was you would go to any mall and there would be a bouldering gym in in the mall. It just, you know, you'd see the whatever, the clothing store and you'd see the food court and then there would be a bouldering gym. And I'm not that's not to say that doesn't happen here in the United States. For example, I know First Ascent has a facility in a mall and I'm sure there are several others. But how about Europe? Does Europe does Europe have that same model where you might be going to the mall to buy clothes and then just, oh, let's go next door and have a bouldering session? Well, at least in, you know, uh, Finland or the Nordic countries, yes, for sure. One of my, the Kipley Arena gyms, Kalasakama location is is in a mall and it's their most successful location, um, in, you know, in terms of just the number of people that check in. Um, it's just putting a climbing gym where people are and where people want to be. So I think the difference there is that, you know, what you're looking at is a mall that was built in this really heavily populated downtown area that has, you know, not just retail stores, but, you know, restaurants surrounding it as an area, it's waterfront. Um, And then they built a mall or they built a bouldering gym kind of out in the suburbs as well, closer to the airport and a really big, beautiful, like a glass building, like a greenhouse style building. Really cool. You would think would do equally as well. And it's just not doing as well because it's more destination based. So I think that answer is true of any country if the mall is not destination-based. And what you see a lot of the times in the U.S. around how malls were originally built was they were destination-based. Like you went to the mall. The mall wasn't downtown, right? So you would just go down this heavily red light strip of road and you know strip malls leading up to the mall. And that type of environment, at least here in the U.S. or with our current customer base, that, that just customer attitude or desire is shifting away from that. So they don't want to make that type of commute. They don't want to go to that type of area as much as they used to, or they did in the nineties. You know, I'm a kid. I grew up, I rode my bike to the mall just for something to do, right? Like you just met and went to the mall. And I don't think that that's happening with as much frequency or, you know, it's also just the nature of climbing gyms are successful enough that they don't have to be a destination. Like I said, they can be in the more heavily trafficked areas. So I've actually never been to Asia or I can't really speak to that model, but I know that the uh, European mall gym is definitely something that Waltopia reps were always talking about, you know, and again, it's more of like, you're partnering up with a developer who's building something in a desirable location uh, because it's too cost prohibitive to buy that property yourself and do it. I think this is all a good lead into the operation aspect. We talked about the construction, where to put your gym. And then once the gym exists somewhere, if it is in a heavily trafficked area, like a mall or you know somewhere else in a, in a city or whatever, uh, how might that impact the revenue model? In other words, here in the United States, of course, it's, you know, I'm going to go to this gym, I'm going to get a month membership or I'm going to get a, a year membership or whatever it is. And, and there are, of course, variations on that model. But is is Europe similar with their revenue model or is it a little different? Uh, my understanding of it is that it's not heavily membership based. So this is definitely true of the, the Finland gyms. Um, I don't know of it entirely for the, the other European gyms, but um, you know, some quick research. I think just going on websites, I struggled to find anything that was just like, this is your monthly membership rate, which is on literally every single climbing gym in the US's website. Um, because I think we take a lot more after the traditional fitness gym market here in the US, where you sign up for a monthly membership and you, you know, the more you go, the more cost effective it is. 
Um, over there, at least in Finland, it's, it's definitely day pass and punch pass based. Um, and so where that can have benefits in that you're actually, you know, getting more revenue per visit per customer, your revenue is less, um, predictable, uh, less stable, a lot more cyclical. So the thing that we see specifically in the Finnish gyms is that the summer is rough. <laughs> like it is, it bottoms out because everybody leaves and, you know, there's a cultural aspect to that where, you know, you can leave for a month in Europe and go to a cabin in the woods and that's completely normal uh, versus the U S where everybody gets one or two weeks off to go to the ocean city, Maryland boardwalk. So it's just a different lifestyle type of thing. Um, but I think that, you know, where we're finding from just kind of having two gyms that are are sharing a lot of information, both in the U.S. and, and Finland for the first time, is that the membership model is, is really nice. It's predictable. It allows you to kind of plan, um, you know, future growth and, and future investments because you can make these easily identifiable targets like, hey, we have this many members and we're having a membership drive and we want to get this many. By the year end, we want to have this many members. And, oh, if we have this many members in two years from now, we're going to have this type of cash flow or this type of investment. So, you know, from a budgeting standpoint, I just remember like one month, I think my, my business partner budgeted like minus 50 K in July because everybody's gone and nobody's buying passes versus, you know, having that stable membership base that obviously is cyclical. Like, you know, in Pittsburgh, we see a, a kind of a decrease in revenue and members over the summer months because people go outside and do other activities but then take my gym in Florida, we see a massive increase in revenue over the summer because one, it's so hot that people want indoor activities, but also Florida is just like a destination. So we get a ton of people from different zip codes visiting the gym. Um, and so it's a little bit of like a hybrid where day use is just as important as membership in the summer months of our gym in Florida versus here in Pittsburgh. Um, but I do think that that membership base is, is a really nice model that's proving to be pretty effective. Um, and one, I'm not sure that Europe fully utilizes. And I don't know, um, again, if that's true of all European countries, but um, I think that it's one thing that's allowed the US to have this massive growth um, in the past couple of years. And I, I do think that that relates a lot to banks and banking. And you can go and say, hey, here's a, here's a very easily understandable model. Here's how much revenue I'm going to make if I hit these targets. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's great, right? Like every gym in the US, like one thing that I love is that when you run membership on the first day of the month, it covers all or nearly all of my expenses for the month, right? You're like, yes, that is that was my target when I first opened. It's like, I want to have enough members. So when I hit billing on the first of the month, it covers you know my rent and my payroll. Those are great markers. And when I first opened, it was like, hey, I need enough members to cover my rent. And then I, you know, I rent and payroll and then rent payroll and everything else is the ultimate goal. Um, so that's, that's a model that, you know, is easily understandable by anybody who is looking at it. It sounds like you're painting this picture and correct me if I'm wrong of in, in terms of the construction, meaning finding space, getting financing, the costs, uh, having a more educated base, Europe is a, a little ahead of the US or there may be some advantages to the way Europe does it. But when it comes to operations, at least in when we're talking about the revenue model and you said you you kind of like the membership idea. Uh, it sounds like the U.S. is maybe a little bit ahead of of Europe in in a sense. I don't know if it's ahead or behind. It's just different, and, and and I think proving to be potentially better, as I said, for gaining access specifically to uh, debt 
from banks to grow gyms, right? Like, again, if you have an investor who just loves climbing and will write you a check to open a climbing gym, it doesn't matter what your model is, as long as the gym is successful. And it can it can be successful in a multitude of ways. Like the Kipley Arena gyms are very successful. Like they make more money than they spend every year, of course, or predominantly every month, except maybe July when it's like, you know pretty low. Um, so I, I think that the biggest difference is that just Europe has had climbing established for so long as a sport and an activity versus not to say the US, but you know, specifically cities like Pittsburgh or Midwest towns or Florida, where there's not an existing rock climb, right? So uh, that allows them to have an easier time, I believe, of getting customers, right? It's just more people know what climbing is, or uh, in my experience as a gym operator and, and a gym customer and working in gyms and stuff is that your, your greatest form of marketing is word of mouth. It's like somebody who tried climbing and was like, this was so fun. I'm going to bring back a bunch of friends. Right. So if that is just happening at a significantly higher rate in Europe, it's easier for them to get customers. And maybe that happens at a high enough rate that you don't need membership because so many people are coming in the door all the time to try out climbing. Um, so I do think that the U S is kind of, explosion of indoor climbing gyms in the past 10 years and the success of them is something that, uh, you know, nobody can ignore, um, in terms of like, they're, we're obviously doing something right. Um, and so, you know, the anecdote previously, even when I first started working at Waltopia, uh, I don't know, 2015 was like, you know, the U S looked to Europe to figure out what to do with climbing gyms. And I think, you know, at least now everybody's looking at the U S in terms of what are they doing? Why is it working? Um, you know, and what, any gym operator should look at any other gym and say, what can I learn from this gym and, you know, improve my own. So I think that a lot of my experience in European gyms was always having that attitude when I went into them. So I, you know, for example, I went on a two week honeymoon to Europe with my wife and I was like, Oh, we're going to go to all these climbing gyms. And she's like, absolutely not. But <laughs> fortunately that we had enough time in these cities where I'd be like, come on, let's just walk to this climbing gym and try it out. And we'd go in and we'd have this amazing experience. And she ended up, you know, we went to a, city, a climbing gym in every city, but I'd walk into it and be like, okay, I'm not only a climbing gym sales rep, but I want to open a climbing gym. So what can I learn from these facilities? What experiences am I having that are, you know, um, something I should take note of? And then just touch on those briefly. And I always use my wife as a reference um, around kind of how I designed my gyms or what I do with my route setting or how I basically deliver the end product because she's a, a desirable target demographic, right? Like she's not a diehard outdoor climber. She just likes to go indoor climbing. And if she has a good experience, she likes it and wants to go back. If she doesn't, she doesn't. Um, and in all of these gyms, I think one of the biggest things that's worth mentioning is they have specifically in Europe and less in the Nordic countries really nailed the, the, coffee beer aspect of the climbing gym, which the U.S. has just failed to do kind of across the board. There's a couple operators that have had mixed success with it. I think even I, you and I spoke, like I designed a coffee bar into all of my gyms. The pandemic happened. I didn't want to serve coffee during the pandemic. So I kind of shelved all of that and we, we haven't really brought it back, but almost every climbing gym in Europe, you know, you walk in, you have an espresso, you go climbing and you sit down and you have a beer. So whether you want to call that like the third place, you know, that every business strives for, if it's not work or home, where's your third place? That just kind of the, the atmosphere of the European climbing gyms catered to, to things above and beyond just climbing themselves. Like the Arcos gyms are basically like restaurants, right? In France, like they just have this additional model. Uh, and everything I remember about going to these gyms with my wife was, she's a coffee snob. They had great espresso. And then we would have this awesome meal at the end of climbing. And so you're kind of bookended by this, you know, above average experience of coffee and food for the U.S. in a climbing gym, which is really unique. And then specific to the actual climbing, you know, she's a 
she's been climbing for 10 years, but she's not, like I said, a diehard. So she climbs a lot of moderates for fun and mileage. And in a lot of the gyms we'd go to in the US, she would burn out on it a little quicker. You know, the US model around route setting was a little bit more ladder focused, like gain the physical strength to actually start rock climbing. Well, in Europe, they like kind of flip that on their head and all of the moderate climbing is amazing. It's super fun. It's really technical, but it's all like body position and weight shifting versus strength based, you know, huge resources of volumes and giant holds are donated to specifically kind of the entry level climbs. And I don't know if that's a result of just trying to turn people into climbers as much as it is. They just have such a large, uh, customer base of younger and older people. Like, you know, there's 80 year old climbers and bouldering gyms in Europe. You don't see that as often in the U S uh, but she had this amazing experience around the route setting, devoting all of this interesting movement to entry level climbs. And that's something that I've tried to emulate and been complimented on a lot here in our U S gyms, um, that I think is really worth noting. And, you know, I went bouldering in uh font with a, actually an old member of a climbing gym I worked at and He's like, I'm going to take you to the most American boulder in font. And it's like a power boulder where you just like jump and grab a pinch. And I think I did it in two tries. And it was like a B, I don't know, seven or eight or something like that. I forget the name. And then meanwhile, I'm falling off this like B3 slab or climb that I couldn't do because it was so technical. So I think that, you know, that's true of American and European climbing, like just anecdotally, like your Americans are very powerful. They square up, they jump, they hold a swing. Uh, and in Europe, they're really technical. And I think that that's a result of how well they set entry level technical boulders. And that's a, uh, you know, a user experience thing that I think any, you know, US gym operator should take uh, and try to emulate because it, it works. Like it teaches people how to climb and makes them have more success. Like the last thing you want is somebody to say, oh, I tried climbing and like I did that, that those two climbs and then I couldn't do anything else. And I had this terrible experience, right? They want to go in and have fun and explore movement and kind of learn how to climb uh, before they, you know, are going to commit themselves to the sport. Yeah, there really should be some sort of large scale coordinated exchange program where European gyms can get some American setters going over there and American gyms can get some European setters. I don't just mean like one here and there. I mean, like a lot of them coming over. So I because I so I guess I was kind of wrong because years ago, I I think I wrote a piece saying something like, yeah, there used to be this separation between the American style of route setting and the European style of route setting. But I think as both industries develop and as the internet makes it so easy to, to kind of see what each continent is doing and different countries are doing, I said that that, that delineation was going to kind of fade away and, and there was no longer going to be this stark separation between an American style and a European style. I, I guess I was a little wrong. Uh, it, it, you know. From from hearing you, it's it sounds like yeah that that style of setting in the gyms is still present. That that difference in the styles is still is still present in the U.S. It's just some I, I call it good different. Like they just set different, but it's good. And I don't know. I, it's really hard to pinpoint. Like we just did the the Climbing Business Journal Grip Showcase at Iron City, and because you know the CWA was in Pittsburgh, we brought over some of the Finnish team and we brought a route setter. Um, and everybody loved his boulders and he just set these things that, you know, with, we all have access to the same holds, but he just orients them in this way where I look at it and I'm like, that looks weird. Like, and then you get on it and you're like, oh, that's so fun. I don't know how or why that worked so well, but it's just good, different. Um, and you know, I think that that's true of any art or craft and, you know, it's a, a cultural thing. It's, you know, who you're, who was your mentor, who are, who are your customers, but 
certainly the styles are just different. Um, and I think I completely agree that, you know, the more uh, we can share the craft of setting or knowledge around it, not only, you know, country to country, but even gym to gym, like route setters are so insulated. It's very mentorship based. A lot of, you know, I would say the vast majority of route setters predominantly set only in one facility with one team of route setters for most of their career, right? Like it's just how it is. And there's limited or no access specifically to, you know, European setting unless, and this kind of circles back to, you know, like the investments um, and, and improving the sport are falling on the shoulders of the indoor climbing gym operators themselves, right? Like, you know, uh, the, the summit gyms used to bring over a lot of, uh, European gyms, uh, or European coaches because their team, team Texas is huge, you know, and they would bring them over and then those people would help teach route setting and, and do clinics like that. But that doesn't exist unless the gym, you know, brings them over themselves. So there's no, like, you know, entity that's out there actively promoting route setting education, even in the U S let alone abroad. Um, so I would love to see the industry progress to that point where it kind of, again, gets off the shoulders of the climbing gym operators to, to spearhead that and, and end up on the shoulders of some sort of, you know, entity or, or organization that's for the betterment of climbing gym or route setting, uh, education. Well, listen, I know you have to run. I really appreciate you making the time. I feel like we could have a whole other discussion on the route set. We could continue discussing okay. the route setting. Uh, please, when you're in Europe, go to a gym, have a good cup of coffee for <laughs> for, for all of us here. Is it really just the matter of having better ingredients? You kind of indicated that that is the reason that the cafes and the gyms over in Europe are so successful. It's it's really like good espresso. Is that uh, it? Just the is a quality aspect. I mean, I. I think that espresso in the U S still is struggling to catch on. Right. Like there's a, there's this amazing French bakery right down the the street from my gym in Pittsburgh. And I was in there one time and you know, there was like a, a baguette of sorts in there. And some guy came in and was like, is this bread? And it's like, yeah, that's bread. Like, like, and he was just in there trying to find a cup of coffee and, you know, like, so there's just this, like, we're not on the same page in terms of what cafes are yet. And the customer base isn't there. So, you know, if you pulled the average number of climbers in a gym in Europe, how many of them drink espresso regularly, the percentage of that is going to be astronomically higher than that of, a, of one in the U S. So I think the U S is still very coffee based where Europe is, it's very espresso based. Um, and that's one of the bigger differences on it, um, and around it. So, I don't know exactly what makes their coffee so much better. Um, but I think that it relates more to just like, again, similar to climbing gyms, people know what it is. There's more product available. There's more educated customers who then can go make good espresso, right? Like you in, in similar route setting, like you have to make a good espresso. You don't just push a button and a good espresso comes out. That's my critique of the Nordic gyms. They always have like push button coffee. And I'm like, man, gotta get this out of here. Like, <laughs> like I can't have push button espresso anymore. I'm a snob now. So. Before you before you get out of here, if people are listening to this and they it, can you plug where they can either get a hold of you or where they can find more information about your your gyms or moments, any social media websites, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's um, ironcityboulders.com and bluesonboulders.com or both of my gym pages. Um, and I believe there's a contact us page on there. I'm on Instagram. I think it's my last name and first initial. I don't know. I mean, like 10 years ago, prevent D so you can message me on there. Or, um, I can of course provide you with my email address. It's my first a period. And then last name at momentsclimbing.com. So dean.prevet at momentsclimbing.com. And you can feel free to list that alongside of the website. But, um, yeah, certainly at my time in Waltopia, I acted a lot as a, 
a general consultant around how to open an indoor climbing gym. So I'm always happy to relay my experiences, uh, having actually done it now and prove that I kind of knew what I was talking about when I had those conversations. So if anybody has questions, they can certainly feel free to reach out. Thanks a lot, Dean. Great chatting with you. Safe travels, smooth travels over to Europe. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I also want to thank Dean for circling up before his flight over the ocean. If you like what you heard, it helps if you give us a like or a review or a star rating, depending on your listening platform. But more than all that, it's just great if you go tell a friend that CBJ has a podcast. We want to see you on social media, so check out CBJ's Instagram at Climbing Business Journal. We also have a YouTube page. You can probably find it by just typing in Climbing Business Journal, or you can search at Climbing Biz, which is spelled B-I-Z. And we have a website where we'd love to hear from you. There's a contact page on there. The CBJ website is www.climbingbusinessjournal.com. We have new articles always getting posted there, breaking news, job openings, all that good stuff. But I'll be back here soon with another guest. So we'll see you next time.